This is a compilation of interviews we conducted prior to the outbreak of the conflict in Palestine and Israel on October 7, 2023. Since the focus of the mainstream media is currently on the recent crises, we took the opportunity to shed light on the historical and geopolitical picture of the issue ag, an approach that we believe is missing from the media's courage. First, interview with Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, 16th of December, 2022. And uh, do you think that the U.S. is really concerned about human rights in Iran. We're seeing a lot of rhetoric coming, for example, from the Biden administration. Even recently, uh, the German foreign minister, Annalia Baerbock, was uh, very, voiced very concerning uh, rhetoric concerning Iran. Is the West really concerned about uh, public executions, women's rights, and or how do you see that? Of course not. I mean, what about the 140 executions of Palestinians by the Israeli Defense Force, including my colleague, Shireen Abu Akhla from Al Jazeera, who was a U.S. citizen? No, I mean, just look at the difference between the rhetoric about the egregious human rights violations carried out by Israel uh, and those carried out by Iran. Again, it gets into that bifurcation of worthy and unworthy victims and Palestinians in the eyes of Washington and most of the West are unworthy. You mentioned uh, Palestine. Uh, some people also bring up Saudi Arabia where public executions happen every year of dissidents, of feminists, of activists. Um, we can also see that in other Gulf monarchies. How come the West uh, is not concerned about the human rights situation there? Uh, what are the driving geopolitical and economic factors that hinder any sort of voicing of our politicians and media to address the situation there? Well, let's mention my friend Jamal Khashoggi, who was drugged and flayed to death and dismembered in the Saudi consulate uh, in Istanbul. Um, it was either Ankara, was it Ankara, I believe. So, uh, Uh, the, I, I spent 20 years on the outer reaches of empire. Uh, the, these forces only, quote unquote, care about human rights when it's to their political advantage. Uh, there, it's, it's, there's no commitment to human rights in terms of uh, everybody uh, having a right to civil liberties and protection from Uh, extrajudicial killings. It's just, and and we carried out. Look what we did in Iraq. Look what we did in Afghanistan with a drone program alone. And Daniel Hale, the courageous whistleblower who was a drone operator who exposed the drone files, drone documents that showed that up to 90% of the people being killed by our drones were innocent civilians. So, Uh, that hypocrisy sells maybe in, a, in the United States where most people don't understand the outer workings of empire, but I don't believe it sells in most of the rest of the world. You mentioned uh, Israel. I want to talk about the recent developments there in the Israel-Palestine region. Jana Majidi, a 15-year-old Palestinian, was on the roof in her pajamas playing with a cat uh, when an Israeli sniper shot her twice in her face. You already mentioned this earlier this year. We saw a similar situation with the Israeli sniper killing journalist Sherin Abdul Akhleh. 
Now we're seeing Benjamin Netanyahu returning to power as prime minister and incorporating right-wing forces that were previously banned in Israeli politics. How do you see the situation developing uh, for Palestine going forward? I think what's happening is the mask is being lifted from the apartheid state. Uh, it's always been an apartheid state, but in order for Netanyahu to get back in power, he's had to reach out to these Jewish extremists, these fanatic Zionists and religious bigots, uh, and, and that has really uh, exposed the lie of the old tropes uh, that uh, uh, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East and uh, hate and racism have no place within Israel and they uh, need to uh, subjugate the Palestinians uh, in order to uh, protect themselves from terrorism, all of that is being ripped away. And, and the real face of Israel is being exposed, especially by uh, these figures you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the old Kahana, the Ben Gavir's party. He's an old Kahanist. He was actually denied, uh, uh, he was rejected by the Israeli military because of his extremism. I covered Rabin. He was very involved in this right-wing, far-right-wing movement uh, that uh, called for Rabin's assassination. They used to, uh, at, at Netanyahu rallies, uh, have an effigy of Rabin dressed as a Nazi and burn it. And Leo Rabin always blamed Bibi until she died for her husband's assassination. Uh, and, and I think that what we're going to see is as bad as things are uh, for the Palestinians, and they're pretty bad, um, uh, especially with the numbers of killings. This is the worst death toll since 2006, if you exclude the uh, Israeli bombardments of, uh, uh, of Gaza. Um, uh, that'll all be ratcheted up. I mean, we saw, for instance... Uh, uh, the uh, murder of this uh, Palestinian. Uh, he was uh, it was caught on video where he was shot three times and then pushed to the ground and executed by Israeli soldiers. And Ben Gavir called the Israeli officer a hero, um, as by the way he calls uh, Baruch Goldstein, the Jewish settler who in 1994 massacred 29 Muslim worshippers in uh, Hebron. So I think that what we're seeing is the rise of a kind of Jewish fascism. Uh, and uh, in some ways, it's a more honest portrayal because uh, of what uh, the Israeli state is about, the apartheid state is about. And it's part of the reason why figures, certainly within the military and uh, other parts of the Israeli establishment are panicking over this proposed coalition government uh, that Netanyahu is putting together uh, because it's just going to be impossible for them to disseminate the usual lie or lies uh, that has worked to really cover up what Israel is and what it does. Do you think that this will be the collapse of the apartheid state as we know it? 
Well, it could just become a, a, you know, it could have, it could just become an open despotism. And it's very difficult to, I don't think the apartheid state is going to collapse until we build a serious uh, sanction movement like we did with South Africa. That's why I'm a big supporter of the boycott, divestment and sanction movement. But I think that that will fuel uh, that movement and fuel the kind of repugnance towards Israel. We've already seen splits now within the uh, uh, the liberal uh, Jewish uh, wing of, of the Israel lobby. Uh, Jeremy uh, uh, Ben-Yamin, uh, he's the president of J Street, this liberal Zionist group, issued a public statement that called uh, the government that Netanyahu was putting together, uh, that said it ran counter to the values of American Jews uh, and uh, said that unequivocal support, uh, what he called unquestioned loyalty to Israel, uh, no matter what, is a disservice to the health of the Jewish community. So I think that, uh, that it will certainly weaken the grip that Israel has, particularly within the United States, and uh, that will create more opening for pressure, um, but I wouldn't go so far as to predict the fall of the apartheid state, although, of course, that's what I'd like to see. Interview with Noam Chomsky, world-renowned political dissident and linguist, 15th of June, 2022. I want to shift gears now and focus on Israel-Palestine. Shirin Abu Akhleh, an American-Palestinian journalist, was allegedly killed by an Israeli sniper. The Palestinian Authority investigation concluded that Abu Akhleh was hit by a bullet fired by Israeli soldiers, and the Israeli forces are still conducting an investigation. The Palestinian Authority has ruled out a joint investigation. Although the U.S. and the EU have condemned the attacks and called for an independent investigation, no actions such as sanctions have been taken. Can you talk about the significance of this case? It's very significant. Uh, what is most important, most striking, is the behavior of the Israeli army at the funeral. I mean, bad enough that they assassinated a, a journalist. But take a look, I'm sure you've seen the videos of the funeral, where the IDF attacked the funeral, even attacked the pallbearers, made them drop the coffin. What was striking about that is how brazen it was. They simply don't care. They're one of the leading Israeli journalists, Gidon Levy, covers the West Bank, simply described it frankly. He said, IDF stormtroopers, his word, just attacked the funeral because they don't care. They are confident of U.S. support and therefore they'll do anything. Doesn't matter anymore. They're not trying to pretend. Now, there are other cases like uh, the Supreme Court just ordering uh, a thousand Palestinian villagers to leave their homes because the United, Israel wants to take them over for settlers. 
I mean, they, that Supreme Court judgment was given at midnight in the hope that people wouldn't notice it too much. But that's as bad as attacking the funeral. Uh, and they're doing it brazenly. It's much more than this. Uh, long ago, Israel annexed the Syrian Golan Heights and what's called Jerusalem, actually an area about five times this the size of Jerusalem, including many Arab villages. Israel annexed them in explicit violation of Security Council orders, ordering them not to do it. They didn't care. They did it. They assumed the United States would support it, which it did. And under Trump, the United States has formalized its support. It has now said, yes, you can annex any territory you want in violation of the Security Council orders. Well, in those circumstances, apparently Israel feels it can do just about anything. Uh, you read this morning's newspaper, this morning, they pretty much conceded that they just poisoned two Iranian nuclear scientists. What happens when somebody else does that? Well, when Israel does it, it's applauded in the United States. Why shouldn't they assassinate people they don't like? Okay. As long as the United States continues to back this and Europe sits by quietly and says, uh, we don't care, uh, Israel will simply become more and more brazen. And then comes another issue. You'll notice that in the uh, Shirin Abu Akhlet, of a black case, the U.S. media really for the first time gave extensive exposés of the crime. CNN, Washington Post, New York Times. That's a change. Israel's actions are becoming so blatantly intolerable that even the mainstream media in the United States are beginning to complain about them. Uh, and in fact, if you look at polls, Israel's losing its support. Uh, if you go back 10 or 20 years, Israel was the darling of the liberal community. Not anymore. The liberal opinion is more supportive of Palestinian rights. Support for Israel in the United States has shifted to the far right. It's not in the Democratic Party. It's in the right wing of the Republican Party evangelical Christians uh, based on their theology of second coming, uh, uh, ultra-nationalists, uh, military and security forces. That's the base of Israeli support. That could lead to a change in U.S. policy. That's the most likely salvation of anything for the Palestinians. The rest of the world given up. You know. uh, this morning, uh, you may have noticed that uh, the leading uh, Israeli writer, Olaf Bet Yehoshua, died, a lot of obituaries for him, including his final statements about how he had given up on an effort for a diplomatic settlement. It, it, uh, it's important that he said that a couple of years ago. But it's a sign of the shift in Israel among more or less liberal opinion, 
which is now shrinking. It's becoming a very reactionary state. Uh, today, again, another poll in Israel reported in Haaretz, a majority of Israelis don't want to have any Palestinian participate in any government. Countries becoming more racist, more reactionary. It's uh, established close relations with Hungary, the outlier in the European Union, a liberal democracy. They have shared racist, anti-Muslim uh, uh, doctrines. They both feel aggrieved because they're not treated in a friendly fashion by Europe. And they both think they have every right to do what they want. So they're establishing a closer relation. That's part of the world system that's developing. Incidentally, just to add to that, uh, I'm sure you followed the meeting in uh, Hungary a couple of weeks ago of the reactionary neo-fascist elements in Europe. The leading participant in that was the American Conservative Political Action Committee. That's the core of the Republican Party. Uh, President Trump, former President Trump gave a glowing speech uh, uh, expressing his great admiration for Hungary's destruction of democracy and uh, racist uh, uh, Christian nationalism. The uh, 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 Tucker Carlson, who's the leading television personality in the United States, simply worships Hungary. He gave a speech, done a major documentary on how wonderful Hungary is. Notice this is the United States. It's not, it's not Andorra. It's the most powerful country in human history. And these are the groups that are going to take Congress in November. They already have the Supreme Court. They're gearing up to block democratic procedures so that they can pick up the presidency in 2024. That means something for the world, for everyone in the world, a lot. It means we're on a course to disaster. In Germany, it's a very difficult environment to talk about Israel and Palestine, to use terms like apartheid, um, because always the history of Germany is invoked into this discussion, drowning out any debate, discussion, uh, discourse on this issue. Um, for us, for example, in our organization, we have been accused for anti-Semitism, for just reporting on Israeli apartheid, whether Amnesty International is reporting it or Human Rights Watch. Um, how do you overcome this, given the difficulty and past of Germany? Well, Germany is a special case because of its utterly hideous record. So, yes, I can understand why there'd be special sensitivity about this in Germany. Nevertheless, we should be honest about it. For 50 years, Israel's has been explicitly trying to use the Holocaust as a propaganda weapon 
to justify crushing the Palestinians, occupying Palestinian territory illegally, uh, practically destroying Gaza, uh, almost unlivable now. A million children can't even get potable water. Uh, constant atrocities in the West Bank. You read journalists like Gideon Levy, Amira Haas, others, daily reports. They think they can get away with this as long as they can wave the Holocaust in front of people's eyes. I should say this is explicit. So if you go back to 1973, uh, Abba Eben, leading Israeli statesman, highly respected, wrote a very interesting article in uh, the more liberal Jewish journal in the United States, Congress Weekly. In this article, he said, the duty of American Jews is to show that any criticism of what he called Zionism, meaning policies of his government, any criticism is either anti-Semitism, if it comes from non-Jews, or neurotic self-hatred, if it comes from Jews. He actually mentioned two people. I was proud to be one of them. The other was I.F. Stone, committed Zionist, critical of Israel, therefore a neurotic, self-hating Jew. Okay, that makes 100%. Nobody can criticize Israel. It's explicit, perfectly explicit. It's interesting if you take a look at the famous uh, definition of anti-Semitism by Yehura. It's, it's used all the time. According to that, Abba Eben is a leading anti-Semite because one of their criteria for anti-Semitism is the claim that all Jews have to be associated with Israel. So Abba Eben is one of the leading anti-Semites in the world. Uh, the Israeli Supreme Court is totally anti-Semitic. They've stated that uh, Israel is the sovereign state of the Jewish people, like it's my sovereign state living in the United States, not the sovereign state of its population. Perfect example of anti-Semitism by the standard definition. Uh, well, again, I can understand hesitancy in Germany to talk too much about that, but they shouldn't fall for it and everywhere else it should be ridiculed. Interview with Dr. Sher Heaver, independent journalist, author and economist, 20th of July, 2023. On July 3rd, 2023, the Israeli military conducted a so-called operation in the Jenin refugee camp in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. According to many Western media networks, it was Israel's largest military operation in the West Bank since the Second Intifada, and the Israeli government call it Operation House and Garden. Before we get into the details, which I will discuss in the next question of this interview, could you first provide us with some context to Janine and also talk about the socio-economic conditions in which the population resides there? Sure. Uh, Janine is not just a city, but it's also a refugee camp, uh, which is at the heart of the city. Uh, it's actually a very small city. So in Junin, we have uh, um, less than 50,000 people, and the refugee camp is another 40,000 more or less. 
So altogether, we're talking about a rather small uh, area for, in, especially if you compare it to the size of the Israeli military operation with tanks and helicopters and and brigades. <laughs> so so it's really uh, almost absurd. But Jenin is is a city which has uh, uh, suffered very very much under the Israeli occupation uh, for many years. It has been a symbol for Palestinian steadfastness in the face of occupation because of the Freedom Theater, for example, uh, and um, of Jenin, where people use culture as a means of resistance. And also, more recently, Jenin, as well as Nablus, have become cities that openly rebel against the Palestinian Authority. So they refuse to be part of the Palestinian Authority um, system of, of uh, security cooperation with the Israeli government. And even the Palestinian Authority security forces in Jenin just tell their bosses, tell their officers, we cannot, uh, we cannot work with you because the population would just simply not accept it. So Palestine, so Jenin has become a sort of symbol for Palestinian uh, steadfastness, rebellion, and the demand for freedom. Can you talk more about this refugee camp? Where are these refugees from, and what conditions are they living in? Most of the refugees in Jenin come from Haifa. Haifa uh, is a city uh, which a, a very famous Palestinian city on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, and Jenin is not very far away, but even though it's maybe 20 kilometers, 30 kilometers away from Haifa, um, it's not. Many people in Jenin have never seen the sea because they're not, never been allowed on the other side of the separation wall, um, so uh, the apartheid wall. Um, in 1948, the um, Zionist militias that took over uh, Palestine have used mortars to scare the civilian population of Haifa into leaving. Uh, and what they actually did is drive people towards the seaport and, and tried to drive them into the sea. Uh, there is this sort of myth that the Arabs want to throw the Jews into the sea. Uh, this is not true. But the myth comes from the, the fear that uh, Israeli Jews have uh, that uh, Palestinians will want to seek revenge for the same act that they did against Palestinians in 1948. At the time, the British mandate, which uh, the British military was still around, they were on their way out, and they arranged for boats to rescue Palestinian refugees and take them mostly to Lebanon. But uh, there were, uh, at the time of 1948, Jenin was taken over by Jordan it, as part of the West Bank. Jordan took over the West Bank. So uh, Jordan allowed refugees to come from Lebanon and live in Jenin and arranged a refugee camp there, uh, which was also uh, financed and uh, operated by the United Nations. Uh, but uh, after 67, these people who uh, escaped uh, for their lives uh, or were driven out in 1948 came once again under control of the Israeli forces. The Tagesschau show in its July 3rd segment called Janine, quote, the largest retreat of militant Palestinians. In the Western media generally, the Israeli defense statements are recycled, and this sort of military move is often called a military operation, while other foreign channels, such as, for example, Al Jazeera, classified as an attack or an assault. How would you define this operation? What really happened in Jenin and what were, were the intended goals the Israeli military was trying to achieve? Well, the, the way that the German media is covering the story is uh, barely worthy of, of coverage, I think. Uh, uh, the Tats newspaper called Jenin a powder keg. Uh, 
Uh, I don't uh, see any more le absurd levels of blaming the victim than I see in the German media, as if the Palestinians are to blame for being so attractive to Israeli bombs and bullets. Uh, that's that's uh, uh, ridiculous. No, the reason that uh, the Israeli forces chose to attack Jenin is not because Jenin has some strategic value or there were some people there that they wanted to arrest. Uh, they didn't make arrests. Let's make that very clear. Uh, they attacked for 45 hours. They killed 12 people, five children, uh, and they uh, didn't make any arrests. They achieved zero strategic goals. The only reason that they chose Jenin was that they wanted to help preserve the Palestinian Authority as much as possible. And if they've chosen a Palestinian city which was still under control of the Palestinian Authority, that that would probably cause the collapse of the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority itself has been speaking to the people of Jenin for a while. And there was even a visit by uh, President Mahmoud Abbas immediately after the attack, where they tell the people, look, if you cooperate with us, of course, you don't like our politics, but at least we can protect you because the Israelis are not going to launch an attack into a city like Ramallah, which is uh, still loyal to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, so be like Ramallah and and, uh, and be part of it. And the people of Jenin say, well, uh, freedom is more important than uh, safety. Uh, but but that doesn't make them terrorists. I'm, I think every every human being would uh, agree with that statement. So so just to put that uh, right there on the table. But you wanted the context for this attack. Uh, this can only be understood in the context of the severe crisis that is happening in Israel right now with a far right government, more right wing than any uh, in history and uh, protests that are against the government, which pretend as if Israel used to be a democratic state and trying to return to this uh, it, uh, illusory state of democracy, but uh, the the government, the Netanyahu's government or Netanyahu himself is very, very careful about exploiting this internal rift to his own purposes. And as long as it seems like these two forces are more or less balanced, he can do whatever he wants. The problem is what happens if one side becomes more powerful than the other? And the attack on Janin happened at the beginning of the week, but uh, just before that, on Saturday night, there was the big demonstration, uh, which in in Tel Aviv, uh, where where um, Israeli from the Israelis from the liberal Zionist movement uh, uh, were against the government were protesting, and on that protest there was the anti-occupation bloc, which which comes to those demonstrations. It's rather small pitifully small block, unfortunately, of, of Israelis who say you cannot have democracy with occupation. The, the very least, if we're talking about democracy and opposing the government, is we have to recognize that the occupation has to end. And they have some signs about um, um, Palestinian rights or, or maybe a couple of Palestinian flags with them. Um, not many, unfortunately. The ma majority of the protesters in Tel Aviv on that Saturday evening launched a physical attack against the anti-occupation bloc. They broke their signs, they beat them up, uh, they drove them away. The police, of course, uh, offered no assistance to the anti-occupation bloc because who wants to help the, the leftists? Uh, but this sent a very clear message. There is no balance between the opposition and the government or, or the far right elements within the government. Netanyahu knows that the far right is having a very strong lead and the opposition is turning against itself and is collapsing from inside. 
So in that moment, he wants to appease the far right elements. And that is why the attack on Jenin. Bezalel Smotrich uh, is the head of the far right religious uh, Zionism party, and he's also the minister of finance. But most importantly, he is the governor of the West Bank. By appointing him to be the governor of the West Bank, Israel has effectively annexed the West Bank because it allows the Israeli government to make political decisions of an occupied territory. That is in complete violation of international law and also in violation of Israel's former uh, policy of allowing a military government to make those decisions uh, in the name of, of uh, technocratic uh, decisions or professional decisions instead of political uh, the political echelon. Uh, so Bezalel Smotrich uh, has famously made uh, announced his decisive plan on how to deal with the Palestinians. Uh, and when asked the question, how are you going to deal with the fact that the Palestinians, there are so many, and, and they are already the majority uh, in Palestine, and, and Jews are a minority now. Uh, I say Palestine, I mean the whole area. Um, then but, uh, Smotrich said, uh, Palestinians will have three options. They can obey us. They, and, and give up any kind of political rights, or they can leave, or they can die. This is his decisive plan. Now he's the governor, and now this operation in Jenin was in many ways a manifestation of that plan. So we can talk about what actually happened during the attack, and I think it's important to mention some of those facts, but let's talk about what the people on the ground reported and the Palestinians who, who uh, live in Jenin said, what we experienced is the Israeli soldiers driving us out of our homes, giving us just a few minutes to collect like a suitcase with uh, an extra set of clothes and maybe something to, to eat or drink. And then we, we were driven out at gunpoint in a large column of people outside of the city of Jenin. So uh, flanked by soldiers who are pointing their guns at them. This scene was a scene that reminded everybody of 1948. This is the second option in Bezalel Smotrich's decisive plan, leave. In other, way, in other words, ethnic cleansing. And it wasn't an actual ethnic cleansing because people were allowed to return to their homes after a few hours, but it was a dry run. It was a test. And that is something we really need to take from this uh, attack that the Israeli government wanted to tell the soldiers, look, we know what you really want to do, so we're going to let you train for that. And we also want to scare the Palestinians into submissiveness. So we're going to show them that if they dare stand up for their rights, uh, we're going, we are capable of ethnic cleansing. Uh, so, so that's, I think, the context for the attack. You, you talked about expulsion, uh, annexation, uh, and a military assault. Uh, can you talk about the reaction of the international community, in particular uh, the West, uh, that is so critical uh, of these terms when Russia does this in Ukraine, how have they reacted uh, to this? Um, well, uh, almost no, uh, no responses from the West. There were a few very weak condemnations. The European Union has actually invited uh, the Israeli government to resume negotiations on upgrading the association agreement for the trade relations between the EU and Israel. And uh, Israel is very happy about this. Now, in the association agreement, there is a clause which is obligatory, that say, uh, clause number two, that says that uh, the agreements are co uh, contingent on 
both sides uh, respecting human rights and international law. So the European Union actually is obligated uh, to cancel the association agreement with Israel. And instead, they are offering to upgrade it. I think uh, there's going to be a time where some uh, European politicians will stand trial for complicity with war crimes. Uh, we, we already see senior uh, scholars of international law saying that the Operation Engineering was indeed a war crime. And uh, we expect that the International uh, Criminal Court will start investigation against uh, the criminals who, who are uh, involved in it. You know that uh, you mentioned Ukraine and Russia. Putin it, uh, has been uh, indicted by the International Criminal Court. And as a result, he's not able to travel to a conference in South Africa because South Africa as a signatory is obligated to arrest him and deliver him to The Hague to, to stand trial. So he doesn't go. Uh, we, I think it is uh, hypocritical that uh, Netanyahu can travel and not be arrested. Uh, uh, they, they absolutely have to start um, indictment against him as well and against the heads of the military and the Minister of Defense and against Smotrich, of course, uh, and uh, Itamar Benkvir, the Minister of National Security. These are the people who are giving the orders to use disproportionate force against civilians, and these are clearly illegal. Um, so in that sense, the response is very disappointing. You mentioned the West, but it's not just the West. Uh, Morocco has uh, bought Israeli drones in very large numbers, and those are precisely the same drones that were used in Jenin. So these are attack drones armed with heavy missiles. Morocco bought them. Uh, I'm talking about the Hermes drones, a Hermes 900 by Elbit Systems, the uh, Heron TP drone, which is produced by uh, Israeli Aerospace Industries, which Germany has also shamefully bought, and um, suicide drones like the Herop and the Harpy. These are drones that um, are, uh, blow themselves up on top of a target and are uh, very uh, cruel and uh, aggressive and cause a lot of panic and suffering. Uh, and death, of course. Morocco bought these drones, and Israel, uh, just a week later, announced that it recognizes the Moroccan occupation of West Sahara. So you can see how how things are progressing. It's not just a problem with the West. It's a problem that is uh, widespread. Uh, mm -hmm. But, of course, there are also positive uh, things. I, I don't want to just focus on the negative. Let's also recognize the fact that the European Parliament has voted with a very large majority to endorse the uh, indictment of Israel uh, uh, in the International Court of Justice, as well as, uh, as, as a side clause to support indictment in the International Criminal Court. This is very important because until now, the, the Europe, almost all uh, the members of the EU are, or maybe all of them, I'm not sure, are member, uh, signatories to the Rome Statutes of the International Criminal Court in the International uh, uh, Court of Justice. So it matters a lot what the European Union says. And until now, Germany has tried to defend Israel against that indictment. And uh, the former uh, former uh, um, Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs of, of Germany, uh, Heiko Maas, said that um, he doesn't think that Palestine is a state, and therefore the uh, International Criminal Court, International Court of Justice, should not start proceedings against Israel. 
which is a very weak argument, considering the fact that there are 138 countries in the world that recognize Palestine as a state. Germany is not one of them, but Germany is in the minority here. And maybe uh, the solution is not to try to cover up for Israeli war crimes, but instead to recognize Palestinian statehood. Dr. Shirever, we will be in touch with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Zain. And thank you for tuning in today. Once again, please don't forget to join our alternative channels on Rumble, Telegram, and Podbean. The links to these platforms are provided in the description below. And if you're watching our videos regularly, please make sure to take into account this entire camera team working behind the scenes from audio, light, technicians, in the case of our German videos, translation, voiceover. So in case if you're watching regularly, make sure to donate. If all our viewers today, all 140,000 subscribers donate just one to five euros a month, we will be able to cover our costs for the next five years and provide you with daily non-profit news and analysis. I'm your host, Ed Raza. See you guys next time.